and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us today for another incredible episode. But before we get to today's guest, I'd like to share a bit about myself. So my day job is that I work as an executive coach and a mental performance coach. And I founded a company called Strong Skills. And at Strong Skills, our team is on a mission to change how the world thinks about soft skills. See, we are facilitators and coaches, and we truly believe that labeling competencies like leadership, teamwork, and communication as soft devalues and minimizes the importance of these skills. And one of the strong skills that we teach is what we call shift your mind. And the teachings come from my book, which came out in October of 2020. If you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our past guests, then know you're going to love the book. You can head over to Amazon or anywhere books are sold to purchase, and you can even listen to the audiobook via Audible. Thanks to all of you who have already purchased, and I've been truly overwhelmed by the response the book has gotten so far. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's conversation or any of our previous episodes, we'd love it if you went over to iTunes and wrote us a review. It really helps us expand our reach for the podcast. Thanks to all of you who have already done so, and let's continue to share these intentional performers with the world. Now to today's guest. Pablo Torre is thoughtful, he's smart, he's intelligent, and he's funny. Today's conversation, we get into all of that. We get into his personality, how he approaches media, how he approaches storytelling. And I think at his core, he is someone who deeply, deeply, deeply wants to tell stories that range in emotions, that make you laugh, that may make you cry, that may make you cringe, but mostly will make you think a little bit differently than how you thought before digesting the story that Pablo is sharing. And his background involves deep journalism at Sports Illustrated as a staff writer, as a fact checker. His work there won awards. He then went on to work at ESPN as a senior writer for both its website and its magazine. He will say in today's conversation that he got his start really in the magazine space, and that shapes a lot of how he thinks about storytelling. 
but you probably will recognize Pablo if you're interested in sports because he has appeared on air quite a bit, whether it's on the show Around the Horn as a regular contributor or the sports reporters, which is what I grew up watching, or Pardon the Interruption with Tony Kornheiser, and we're going to talk about Tony in today's conversation, or even Outside the Lines or the Dan Lebitard show. So he's made his bones on air in a lot of ways, and in audio, he's going to talk about his current podcast and how they use video and audio to storytell with Meadowlark Media. Um, and it is a company that was founded by his former colleague, Dan Lebitard, and I think both Dan, Tony Kornheiser, who I mentioned earlier, and Pablo all try to blend humor with wisdom and thoughtfulness, try to go deep, but also live on the surface. And really at their core, they are trying to entertain you, but also make you smarter when you listen to them and when you digest, as I said, their information and their content. Pablo is great. I really love this conversation because it's about polarity. It's about range. It's about things that I really care a lot about. And Pablo embodies all of that and more. So here is Pablo Torre. Pablo, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I owe a thank you to David Epstein, who is the reason that we were introduced and got to break bread together and spend some time together. And it's with David in mind that I thought we would start because we were talking about it right before we hit record. You have range. And uh, if anyone knows mm. David, he wrote the book on the power of range. And it's interesting to me in media that you play in a space that has range because to me, it seems like media is often asking, Hey, who's your audience and be more specific and don't go into nuance and go keep it tight, so to speak. And with this podcast, I've had people ask me, Hey, who's your audience? I'm like, I don't really know. And then they say, well, you should just focus on athletes or you should just focus on coaches or you should just focus on X. And I am in year gosh, I don't know what year this is, seven of this. And I've done like mm -hmm. 350 of these. And what I love <laughs> about it is the range of the people that we've had on. So let's start there. Like what's the yeah. reasoning for you to go from topics such as, you know, you had Amos Prashad on your podcast, talk about Hirsch Goldberg and who's, who's currently kidnapped uh, in, in Gaza. And you talked about his mother and his relationship with this team in Israel. Uh, and then, you know, you'll, you'll have on, like I just watched your conversation with Marcus Jordan and Larsa Pippen. It's like, <laughs> it's like, wait a second, there is a huge Delta of who you're interviewing and the topics you're covering. So give us a sense of why that is and, and why you take a range approach when it seems like other people tend to be more focused. Yeah. So first off, thank you for having me. Thank you for having me inside your home. Um, it was an honor genuinely to like be in a room with people who were united by a curiosity that is, I think, the sort of ages under which I have sort of steered my career. Um, this notion that if I find something authentically interesting, maybe you do, too. And I say that with confidence increasingly because one of the lessons I learned from sports, and you're right, like Pablo Torre finds out, the show I host, um, the running joke is that it's a sports show, dot, 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 technically, which is to say that it is a sports show inside of which you'll find a story about a soccer fan who gets kidnapped. That's really a window into talking about the Middle East and Israel and Palestine. There is a story about um, 
gosh, I mean, I won't even begin to to fall into the rabbit hole that is Marcus Jordan, Michael Jordan's son, and Larsa Pippen, Scottie Pippen's ex-wife. Now, um, pledging their love for each other en route to marriage, but certainly a sports show, uh, technically. And the lesson I learned um, from magazines. So I come from magazines originally. I worked at first for Sports Illustrated as a fact checker. That's where I met David Epstein. The two of us shared a wall at the Sports Illustrated office, never knowing what he would go on to do or what I would go on to do. Um, what I would go on to do, by the way, involves certainly reading what David would go on to do, his books, um, which helped sort of articulate some of my feelings about this. Um, but Sports Illustrated taught me that the world of magazines is, in retrospect, um, at best, an unalgorithmic world, which is to say that it's not something that tries to reverse engineer at its best now, at its best. Certainly, there are exceptions to this to this aspiration. But at its best, a magazine does not seek to reverse engineer what the audience wants algorithmically. It seeks to surprise them with something that they maybe didn't even know that they were looking to read. Like, that's such a huge difference to me. A magazine is, is an institution upon which an editorial discretion um, is trusted enough such that every week or two weeks or whatever it is, you get something that someone else said, hey, you might enjoy this. And that's kind of the premise. And so with this show, I realized that sports ends up being, you know, I'm, I'm just going to ramble for a bit here about sports. You know this, Brian, it, it, it's the biggest tent in American life. And so as long as I can technically satisfy something about the premise of we're a sports show, really what I'm getting to do is touch on everything inside of a genre that is so much more broad than I think the the conventional understanding of sports might suggest. It's interesting because when you describe it that way, I think about my childhood and growing up in Washington, D.C. and listening to Sports Talk Radio. And what I love listening to all the time is someone who you know well, which is Tony Kornheiser. And yes. Tony Kornheiser, when I hear you talk, I think about his Sports Talk Radio show that turned into a podcast it was so much more than sports and actually oh, it was revolutionary at the time. Yeah. If you, if you just listened to it for the sports, you were going to be highly disappointed because it wasn't all that nuanced and, and in depth when it came to sports, but they talk about movies, they talk about culture, they talk about politics. And I know he's someone who's probably had a, a big influence on you personally, professionally yes. in a, a multitude of ways. And I, I read in an article that you said that he was the best to ever do sports television. And when I read that, I was like, well, I think he's the best to ever do sports talk radio. And that mm. was the genre that I grew up listening to him. And he was just so superior from anyone else that I listened to. Because the truth is, if you listen to sports talk radio, it gets awfully boring if you just hear them talk about who won the game and why they won it and why they should have run the ball versus passed the ball. Um, when you're thinking about your work as a entertainer, as a journalist, and you have that range, do you think of someone like Tony and how do you think about him and, and where do you sort of emulate and where do you maybe go in a different direction so that you're not necessarily just copying, but you're evolving it to be your own voice and your own way of doing things? Yeah, um, it's a great question because Tony Kornheiser is a mentor of mine that I did not expect to have as a mentor because I'm not from the world of sports radio. Um, I didn't grow up listening to it. I got to ESPN and started being asked to do it, to be as a, as a guest, as a co-host, as a fill-in. And I began to appreciate the art form. And 
now, of course, Sports Talk Radio, I see its echoes in everything politically and elsewhere. But with Tony Kornheiser in specific, what he always was so unapologetically was a generalist. Like his self-deprecating sort of evaluation of himself, his self-scattering report was a mile wide and an inch deep. And in that way, he was like, look, I want to be able to touch on everything under the sun. And given that I am a smart person with a journalistic instinct, I can then either prepare or ask someone else to make me smarter about the thing that I can I can um, speak about um, with a versatility that I think can be distinguishing. And I'll even push it further that what Tony taught me, um, the biggest lesson I took and I would go on, you know, I visited uh DC, Maryland, and and would go for walks with him in his neighborhood as he was walking his dog. And I'd sort of like pick his brain about his radio show, which birthed so many imitators and and also its own lineage, um, a proud lineage of people who who followed something like this philosophy or versions of it. Um, and what he told me, um, and 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 this was the greatest compliment he ever paid me, is that you can do smart and funny. And those two things, man, are the key. Like, if you're just to summarize everything that I want to listen to and do into two words, smart, funny, um, is it. You get the vegetables, so to speak, but you also get, and, and uh, I'll use a, I don't know if you were a kid who needed to be sort of like uh, uh, fed broccoli with melted cheese on it, <laughs> but I'm going to melt some cheese on your broccoli, man. This is going to be good. Like, this is, you'll learn something, you'll get nourishment, but also you'll enjoy it. And laughter to me, Kornheiser is hilarious. And so that was a real North star in my sensibility. I was talking to my wife about it. We didn't, I don't think we had any vegetables, so we didn't even get to broccoli, but we did it. Strawberries were a part of our dinner and my mom would let us pour sugar on top of oh, the yeah. strawberries and like tons of sugar on the strawberries. <laughs> As you're talking about it and you're, you're talking about funny while also being smart, I was talking to a, a basketball coach about this yesterday. He said something that was really interesting that I hadn't heard before. He said, when I'm watching basketball players, I look to see what's natural for them. And then what are they intentionally trying to do? And his point was he has two guys on his roster that naturally play hard. Like that's just mm. what they do. And that's how they show up. He said, everyone else on my roster has to intentionally play hard. So when you think about smart and funny does one of those come more natural and is one more something intentionally you have to focus on or, or are they both more like just ingrained in who you are? I, I would like to think with all of the self-awareness of somebody who says I am smart and funny, like that person tends to be neither, but forgive the academic sort of introspection here about whether I qualify and how um, I believe that I think about it a little bit differently. I, I think I am. The reason I love doing the show I'm doing now is because I just feel like myself in a way that is uh, just unprecedented in my weird career. Um, but in terms of what I am concerned about in topic selection, right? Um, I am not worried ever about the smart because I'm going to bring a certain just academicness, whether it's vocabulary or sensibility, like I'm, I'm gonna, and it's also just as, as grading on the curve of sports media, Let's be honest, like I, I over index on like, OK, that guy, that that dude is he he, he presents as smart. Um, the funny, I just want to make sure the stories I do have some element of humor, because I find that when I want to do serious or academic or something that is genuinely eye opening um, and it stimulates my brain, 
I want to make sure that people have a good time doing it. And so it's less that I'm trying to force a joke or scripting jokes. It's more that I need to find a part of the story that allows us some relief, um, some range, some emotional range. Like, you know, one of the biggest challenges, and it's so cool that you listened and that you mentioned it first, but the Hirsch Goldberg story was a story that I worried about simply because how the fuck could you possibly find humor in this, right? How could you? And of course, the proportions of the ability to get relief in that story are smaller than any other episode we've ever done. But we found, and we were just on the hunt for this actively, talking to Rachel, his mom, she was able to smile and laugh at certain parts. When she was imagining Hirsch coming back, Hirsch, for those who don't know the story, his arm was severed in, in his abduction, in his kidnapping, in that horrific event. And so she laughs at the idea of him coming back. He played goalie for fun. He's a diehard soccer fan. And the idea that he'll come back with a robotic arm. And so we land, a spoiler alert, we land the episode on that sentiment, just give it a little relief of like, and, and just a testament to her, by the way, like that's just also the story of finding a great character, a person, a human being who can find the ability to tell a story and then reflect and find some amount of joy amid the opposite. Um, I loved that. And, and I just want to make sure that the range of an individual episode has that. So we're always hunting for, okay, this is smart, but it's not funny. Okay, this is funny, but it's not smart. And I tend to think funny is harder to surface or the challenges in finding funny and serious. As I hear you talk, I think of the power of polarity and how a lot of times we live in a world that's black and white. And look, the Middle East is a perfect example where people take sides black and white you know evil you know good bad you know it's it's very black and white when most things in our society require way more gray and way more nuance and i'm even thinking about this in terms of like identity um and how our identity like someone might say well pablo went to harvard he's smart that's just it. Right. So, and maybe that's how you were viewed by your sports colleagues. Oh, this is the Harvard guy. He's smart. I even heard you say on, I think it was an interview with Maury Povich. He said, yeah, Tony always says, Oh, this is the smart guy. Like Pablo's way smarter than me. And so we get identified as one thing and that becomes the thing that we maybe grab onto. But the mistake we make is that we have all these other pieces of our identity that are also part of us. And yes. as you were, as you were telling the story about Harsh, I was thinking about, I remember going to a funeral when I was younger and I'm Jewish. And afterwards there was this thing called Shiva and you go and you pay your respects to the family. And I remember being there and like my friends were laughing. And I remember saying to someone like, they shouldn't be laughing. They should be sad. And then the, the person wisely said, Brian, like this is also a celebration of life. And the person that died happens to be pretty funny. <laughs> and so there probably should be laughter here. And yet, like we are taught and trained that in a certain environment, you should be this way. And in sports, maybe you shouldn't be smart or funny, right? Like maybe those things aren't necessarily what you should be in sports anyway. And so talk about your identity and how the range of identity then leads to what you're interested in and how that shows up on your show. Yeah. I mean, look, I think I believe fundamentally that we all contain multitudes and I think there are incentives that lead us towards the absolutes, as you said, right? Like our character um, insofar as we each have one publicly is is flattened for the sake of of um, simplicity and and marketing, let's say like, oh, you're the 
you're the egghead. You're the, I mean, it's, it's the breakfast club. It's like the jock, the nerd, the outcast, the, it, it, there's a typology there. That's very easy because we lean towards central casting as a matter of understanding the world. And in reality, I find that I love complicating things. And I also am very mindful of scolding. So I, and I say this because we live especially now and when you mention polarity i think of course of the other sense of it which is that like we just we we just are less likely to want to talk to people that we vehemently disagree with because we find it exhausting or annoying or because maybe even most generously because we've been reading it on our phones and arguing in our heads so much that we no longer want to engage in the real life practice of how to complicate something um, because it's it, at that point, it's just we're like we're over it. Um, we've seen all the arguments. We played it out in our head in the shower angrily. And so it's just like we're done. Um, but for me, I, I want part of my challenge as a person making episodes of something. Um, and, and the show, again, is sort of like a challenge for me insofar as. I want someone who doesn't find this topic interesting to keep listening to the end. I want someone who may disagree. Pablo, how do you, premise. how do you do that? How do you do that? Because I think and, that's, that's so hard, right? And you mentioned social media. It's so hard to continue to follow the people that we disagree with. It is really painful to your point. It's just easier to unfollow. It's easier to turn it off. How do you go about doing that to try to maintain intrigue? Yeah, so this is a question of, I think it's two things that I think of. One is architecture. So when I was a magazine writer, and this is both born of my neuroses as well, but as a magazine writer, I was obsessive in ways that were probably extreme, honestly, but in choosing every word, every punctuation mark, and I don't know if anybody ever noticed it, but for me, it was always considering the next word, the next punctuation mark as a potential exit ramp for someone. So I always am thinking like, when are they gonna tune out when it comes to constructing my own stuff? Um, and I'm just mindful of that. And the second thing is in the angle of, of the story you wanna tell. So we do a lot of stories, or at least we try to frame interviews, um, conversations, um, almost in a docu-style fashion where we, we are, and this is again a Kornheiserism, um, we want to embrace the fact that our heritage on the show is journalism doing reporting, making calls, fact-checking. Again, I started off as a fact-checker with Dave Epstein, one of the great fact-checkers of all time, by the way. One of the most overqualified fact-checkers of all time was David Epstein. Um, but one of the things that I really took to heart was if I find the right angle on a story, that can be a skeleton key into something that no one presumed that they wanted to, 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 to get into. So the best example of this is that the, the biggest and most exhausting story in sports conversation, the discourse, has been the trans female athlete. Mm. It's campaigned on. It's the Leah Thomas thing. There are, And, and by the way, I, I'll, I should already say immediately that there are scientific critiques of how we need to create policy that are valid. It's a complicated story that's been wrapped up in a culture war about these kids these imposters are stealing the trophies and scholarships from our girls, okay? So that's a lot of like just the messaging around this thing. It's exhausting. On either side of this, I get it. And it, generally it's a thing that nobody for that reason um, in 
let's say mainstream sports media really wants to get into because it's just so exhausting. And so I was like, okay, but it's also the biggest story. And it's also really interesting underneath for reasons of, and I've talked to Dave Epstein about this as well. Um, let's talk about hormones. Let's talk about testosterone. Let's talk about how you create competitive equity. Um, how do you enforce the standards of sports upon a, a population that challenges the very categories that we have become familiar with? But how do you get into it? And so my angle was, um, I wonder what it's like to be a trans female athlete who sucks at sports. Meaning, you are the person who is alleged to be the boogeyman, right? You are the person who is, because you were assigned male at birth, you have the biology of, of, of a man. You are presumed to be more dominant than all of the assigned at birth, born female, biologically, competitors in the division you compete in. But what if you suck? And to me, I was like, oh, there is comedy in that. Right. I just got to find out if the person who fits that description also sees it. And so I went around looking to see who in these states across America were actually affected by this legislation that was banning them because they were too good at sports from competing in the sports that they loved so much. And it turned out and again, I, I don't mean to make this into a whole like rabbit hole of this, but it just illustrates the point, I think, in the state of Ohio, when they tried passing this legislation to ban trans female athletes from varsity sports. There was one varsity athlete who met that description named Ember Zelch, played softball, and she sucked. Bench warmer, backup catcher, was not a threat to anybody. No one gave a shit. And that was the boogeyman. And I was like, I need to talk to this person. And so I did. And, and, and so in the story, in the telling of this, you sort of just meet a person who, again, contains multitudes, who's not threatening, who likes snakes and like Dungeons and Dragons and just like loves sports so much that they decided to go through with the challenge of I will be made a villain. I will be presumed to be so much better than I am just because I actually find I because I bought sports as this premise that truly like the most diehard sports fan on either side of the aisle would idealize community, discipline, making friends, competition for competition's sake. Like not because they were good, because they loved it. And so anyway, that was a way into that story. I don't know if I would have done that story without the protagonist that would have allowed me to tell someone who was like opposed to even the premise of listening to this. There's another way to think about this story. When I think about comparing that story to the Hirsch story, to the Pippin and, and Jordan story, the commonality or the through line that I'm hearing is to show another perspective on a story, but not tell people what they should necessarily think uh, in terms of those stories. And yeah. I'll use the Pippin Jordan one. Like I could tell as you were interviewing them, like there was judgment, right? And it was hard to hold back the judgment. But uh, you and I forget the co-host name. Uh, yeah, yeah, Charlotte Wilder and Ryan Cortez, my producer. We all tag team this thing. Yeah. yeah, and I think all of you had your own thoughts and biases. But the interview in itself, the reason why I don't think it got cut off in the fifth minute was because you gave them space to just express themselves. And then the audience can leave with their own ideas and their own 
concepts. When I watch the news at night, I don't get that from our, our news media anymore. It is a talking head. It is an opinion piece. I don't get that on, on sports, uh, you know, news shows it's an opinion. And, and by the way, you've played that too, right? Like you, no doubt. Uh, you know, on PTI on around the horn, like, you, Hey, this is what I'm convicted in. And so I'm always interested about conviction and curiosity because you mentioned mm. curiosity right off the bat. And curiosity is a through line in your journey. As I research you, it's like, okay, this is a dude that follows his curiosity relentlessly. And you followed it all the way to finding this person in this state who sucked at sports. Right? So I understand there's this curiosity piece, but then there's this conviction piece that you have to have an opinion or else you're not winning around the horn and you have to have an opinion or else That's you're not right. even on PTI. Where do you figure out when to embolden curiosity and when to embolden conviction? This, this you have just articulated the, the thing I think about a lot as I try to figure out like, what do I love doing the most now? And I, I think it's unsurprising. Um, you noticed the through line, like I value my curiosity even more than my conviction. I think I'm okay with saying that, but it's not as if my conviction is a null set. <laughs> like I have convictions, I have takes. I just, and maybe it's a function of just what you said, which is that the the industry I work in is oversaturated with one thing and is sort of starving for another. And so part of my joy, just to be frank, maybe it's because I feel like I found a niche that makes me different and special. Maybe there's an ego thing there. Maybe that's as much as it is anything. But I also think that when it comes to my ability to, to tell a story and to, to hook someone in, um, I think that conviction can be overrated. <laughs> Like, I think, I think, so the Marcus Jordan and Larsa Pippen thing is a great example um, for the reasons you said. And also because what, whenever I interview somebody and, and clearly you do this, what I want to make clear to them is that I cared enough about them to do the homework. And so even if my conviction then lands at a place of, it's really hard to deny the incentives of the reality television economy upon a pairing that seems to be so perfectly orchestrated in Marcus and Larsa to, to be like, you know, algorithmic almost. Even if I cannot deny that in the end, if that is my conviction, that I cannot divorce my, my suspicion from the love story that they told me, at the very least, I want to make sure I gave them full freight as people who had the space to explain why they fell in love. And also, um, I want them to know that I have been thinking about this deeply. And the the conviction is also hard to divorce on television from um, just the economy of time, right? Like I also just realized maybe that I, in that magazine sensibility, I'm a deeper dive guy by, by, by nature, you know? Um, I love the ability to uh, rat-a-tat-tat short form takes and stuff. And I still really do enjoy that. Love doing it. Love filling in on PTI with Tony Kornheiser. But but man, in terms of like what summons the multitudes inside of me um, more, it's 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 that, let's call it the curiosity column, as you put it. I just want to double click on the Pip and Jordan story because 
as I watched the interview, there were actually a ton of psychological ideas and concepts that came up for me being the son of a, a legend, which you all talked about in the pre yeah. the pre show is like, Hey man, this is a guy who in, in Michael's speech, hall of fame speech, he doesn't even really thank his kids. Right. And in the shadow that he's going to cause them, he acknowledges. Right. So you've got what it's like to be the son of the, one of the greatest athletes of all time. You've got the wife of the sidekick. Um, and, uh, what's it like to be a wife of a baller and like yep. there's complexity there and then there was a moment that larsa shared that i didn't think about or know which she said like i i think she got married or met scotty in his last year with michael and so like there's this assumption in our minds that yeah but like larsa grew up with little marcus and you know is playing with him right and then there's an ageist thing here that we're that's at play too i think she's 49 he's 33 and we see a woman with a younger man and there's there's also that at play so there's all these societal psychological sociological yes. elements that are actually underneath the story if we stay curious to actually listen for them and by the way we still may walk away and say well she's also a real housewife and this is a pr stunt and there's there's that underneath it and they love the fame and they want this too that's fine but you gave people space to actually to actually explore it, which was beautiful. I love that you picked up on all of that, because, again, this is the complication of the flattening of the character. Right. Like, oh, shit, it's not the way that we thought about it exactly. And maybe and look, and, and I don't want to spend this entire time talking about Marcus Jordan and Larsa Pippen, but I think it's fascinating for the reasons you said. And also because my mind was changed to a great degree by talking to them. It does not remove my cynicism around incentives, but I believe that the way that you would think of them, if you only consume them in bite-sized economy of time, algorithmic sort of dosages, is not the reality of them. And, I, and that's true of all of us too. And so giving them that, that, um, that space, I felt was, was um, not just appropriate, it was fascinating. Like, you know, we all should get that because we find out, true to the name of the show, I always accidentally end up saying the name of the movie in the movie, um, we find out stuff about ourselves and them. The long form, short form sort of debate as far as how we're digesting information is also an interesting one because everyone says, oh, it's all, well, it used to be 140 characters. Now someone can write a diatribe on Twitter or X or whatever it's called, but but like there's been this shortening, there's the headlining, there's the scrolling, there's the stories. And yes, there's a consuming of that. And yet I think about your world, I think of someone like Bill Simmons and the long form nature of Bill, his book, it, like I have it. I definitely didn't read Same. the whole damn thing. It's long as it's long as hell. <laughs> um, or even in, in the podcasting world, I think of a Joe Rogan or a Tim Ferriss that are extremely long form. Um, and so we've got like, Examples of long form, whether it's a podcast or a book or TV shows that that actually run, you know, deep and wide all the time. Um, even they do E60s at ESPN and and they do sort of deep dives into people. And so it's interesting when I think about short form and long form, but this is your world more than mine. Like I do this, you know, once a week and I fire up the podcast and just follow my curiosity. But this is actually like you know, you're, you're living your career. And, I, and the, and the other thing I'm just going to bring into this, as we think about like the future of media and, and yeah. how you think yeah, about yeah, yeah. it is like the last thing I watched before I came on with you is the Kelsey brothers and talking about agents and whether you should have an agent. 
And so you're now playing in a space that 20 years ago, the Pablo Tories did get a megaphone and they were able to share, but the jocks are now having their own platforms and saying, Hey, do we even need you, man? Like we can do this totally. on our own. Right. And so it's, it, it's an interesting dynamic. And then I think I zoom out even more to sports and we're now seeing the return of the nerds in our sports teams where they now are running teams as general managers and even head coaches. And so there's this interesting space now where I'm sure someone mm -hmm. like you is trying to figure out, all right, what's the future going to look like in our world and where do I fit in and, and where's the place that I want to play? How do you think about all that? I gave you a lot to chew on. No, all of it is stuff that I think about a lot, man. I'll jump on them in no particular order, but what you mentioned about nerds now running sports and jocks now doing the job of what another iteration of nerd, the media, uh, what, what, what we do is jarring. And it's whiplash-like, and it's it wasn't always so. And by the way, like I should say, I'm doing a story now that I won't sort of like fall into the rabbit hole. I'm still reporting it, but like it involves a party thrown by a journalist that the New York Yankees attended because that was a thing you did in like the 70s, right? And so the economy and the changing of like who has power via platform, the megaphone, as you put it, um, the attention economy, uh, where are dollars flowing to? It has never been one way the entire history of sports, but the the way we're sort of reckoning with now, um, it, it also speaks to what I was thinking about, um, about conviction and curiosity. So if Shannon Sharp, or, and by the way, I love so many of these guys, I, I love some of the stuff they say, if not their shows. I just think in front of a microphone, of course, an open and honest athlete who is vulnerable and introspective and willing to to spill some tea and get messy and just give you the truth behind locked doors. That is what I've always sought in an interview with an athlete. And so the more that athletes are coming to the microphones themselves and saying, and honestly, competitively now being interesting. Yeah, I'm going to click on some of that stuff. The show itself may not be for me because I'm a guy who's a, a, a snob about like a show as a show when it comes to sports media. But I will absolutely be fascinated to hear what Travis Kelsey and Jason Kelsey, Shannon Sharp, these guys like. And so their convictions. I am interested in their convictions more than their curiosities. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so maybe that informs why I am now like, well, look, I don't have the convictions of somebody who went across the middle and got laid out. So. Maybe it's time for me to double down on journalism. Maybe that's the economic incentive here. So, but but speaking to the short form thing, right? I, and I just did because I said I can, can consume them via clips more than I do like the full thing. It's interesting when you think about the media as just a product. And I think about this all the time. The, the, the one thing I feel safe about as a unifying theory of media, of modern media, is that it's fragmented. The only monoculture we have left is really the NFL and Taylor Swift. That's the closest that we come to it. Um, sports still is the biggest remaining tent inside of which you can sort of like sit next to somebody who um, doesn't agree with you politically, religiously or whatever else. Um, and you're just like rooting for the same team. I think that's still true of sports. But the lack of monoculture means that everybody, when it comes to media consumption, we're all listening and watching a million different things. You, you said it before, right? Like when you used to have a megaphone, the definition of that meant you had a crowd of people that was significant in size such that other people wanted their own or wanted yours actually. 
Now you can get your own. And so we all listen to a million different things. And so when it comes to short form, long form, what I realize is that the product that I'm making is many different products in one. I make a show that I stress about in that, uh, you know, self-obsessed, at times snobbish way, like what's the what's the open of our show? What's the ending? What am I leaving you with? How are we getting those little bridges between words? I obsess over that stuff. And that's the show that I hope people consume the most, the full thing. But I'm also very realistic because I'm guilty of it, as I just explained. Oftentimes I'm consuming other people's shows in terms of short form bites. And so all the time we consume things and we say, I'm a fan of this but we never actually consume it in the way that the creator intended. And so we're making different products. We're making different bite-sized versions of something that in the source material maybe was one way that you hoped you would have it listened to or read or watched. Reality suggests that the fragmentation of everything means we are all in a telephone booth with like that fan underneath trying to grab at scraps. <laughs> Will you grab my the the will you grab the short form clip floating across your timeline that has me in it? And and that's different. And and I just you just have to make peace with that. And it's hard. If you're again like someone who obsesses over architecture and like and, and is very detail oriented, like, oh wait a minute, you like my show, but really you're watching like the two minute clip every time. <laughs> like that's just it's I just don't know how we come back from that, honestly. So my dad's a journalist by trade, came up in, you know, working for newspapers and, you know, I, he was involved, you know, he was there when Watergate was breaking. And and so, like, he gets very frustrated with TV and their inability to fact check. The New York Times right now is getting crushed for a lot of the yep. way they approach things as a newspaper. And, and so I want to go back to that notion of, like, all right, I do have to think about my audience. And it sounds like, hey, we do need to meet them where they are. Sometimes it's going to be short clips. Sometimes it's going to be on around the yes, horn. Sometimes it. it's going to be deep. If you didn't have to worry about audience, you didn't have to worry about them consuming. And I told you, Pablo, they're going to consume Pablo no matter how you deliver it. It's going to be a million people are going to consume your content no matter, it doesn't matter the medium that you use. What would be your preferred medium? We have a YouTube channel that is basically a TV show. And it's a weird thing that I'm trying to like sort through in my mind. Like, can I just call this a TV show? It airs on the DraftKings Network, which is a fast channel. It's like a digital television channel. But we make a show right now that is a podcast, can be consumed and can be appreciated by like public radio snobs because you have an audio first sort of ear. But we're also making it visually as a TV show. And I think that TV show is what I'd hope people consume because you get both. You get both. Um, but man, like, it's not an easy question because also implicit in this, right? If you're holding constant demand and it's like, okay, the audience is going to be the same no matter what. Um, no, it's not actually, you know, I, I'm thinking out loud here. If I can control people's attention, I'm going to take more of it. Because I believe that if you give me more, I'll deliver more. And so, yeah, I want you to listen to the full, I want you to watch the full 50 minute episode that we make on our YouTube channel, the TV show, because I think that we have something to say with that space. Um, and that the short form way 
the soundbitey stuff, which we also are, you know, pretty good at. Um, that is actually short shrift to what my actual ambition is, which is like, I'm here to tell you a story, man. You know, give me 50, five, zero, 50 minutes versus, you know, five minutes or 50 seconds. Um, yeah, I would, I would take that. I'm laughing because I was wondering, like I watched your interviews on YouTube to prep for today, but I don't think I would watch your YouTube clips regularly. I would probably consume them via audio when I'm in the car or I'm on a run or whatever it might be. Yeah. And, and it's interesting, like for this podcast, when the pandemic hit, like all of a sudden I used to do a lot of these in person. And actually when I first started this podcast, I hired a camera guy and we interviewed people and we did it with a video. And I was like, Oh, this is going to be a show. And then I was like, gosh, this is annoying. I have to pay for this camera guy. It's too hard. So I just went to audio. Uh, the audio is the one that sort of took off and, and the one that we started doing. And then the pandemic hit and it's like, wait, these are all now over zoom and zoom has this really easy feature. I can literally hit record and I'm watching CNN and there, literally just using zoom to do their interviews yes. and yet i was like you know what i'm just going to keep it as audio that works for me and now i don't have to worry about youtube and all that sort of stuff i bring this back and i'm laughing in my head because our mutual friend david epstein i literally texted this morning with this idea for him and i'll break it to everybody listening because it's fresh and it probably sucks because that's what new ideas usually are and i have a lot of those but i said to him i was like i'm thinking about this and you've been in the room with him and Dan Pink, who we also had over at my house. And Dan Pink's the one that introduced me to David Epstein. And I was like, oh, Dan and Dave. And if you're of our age, you know of Dan and Dave. Uh, in 1992, they're both going for the decathlon. And they have these Reebok commercials about who's the greatest athlete in the world. And I'm like, David, what if you did a show with Dan Pink? And it was Daniel versus David. So it's not Dan and Dave. It's actually a little more nuanced. It's Daniel and it's David. And you all discussed basically the elements of a newspaper. So, you know, news, sports, business, politics, culture, whatever it is. And I envision it in a live studio and with all the bells and whistles that you don't get from a podcast and with amazing uh, you know, editing and bringing in video footage and you actually create a show and maybe this is on HBO or Netflix or Hulu or whatever it is and it's distributed. And it got me like thinking probably similar to you, which is like, how do you actually make it different in a world where I can fire up a microphone and I'm just some Joe Schmo and here we are talking how do you actually make it so that it is unique and it is of value and it's a zag when everyone else is zigging? Um, mm. And that's not a question in there, but I think for all of us that are innovating or trying to innovate, and you even mentioned there's like an artist almost inside of you that it's like, yeah, if everyone's doing that, I probably don't want to do that. I probably want to do this. Like that idea for me, I was like, you two would be amazing to cover a range of topics. And both of you don't tend to do video. Well, Dan does more of it. David does some, but like literally the two of them in a world of thought leadership and um, business management, I, I was like, I think people would consume it, but I don't know because I know nothing about this world. <laughs> I, 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 having met Dan now, um, I would watch that. <laughs> you know, I mean, by the way, and, and not to digress too much, but like Dan has a great voice. He's got presence on screen. He has, and he has <laughs> pipes. He has presence. He's a character. He has a point of view. They're different, 
but also similar. And look, I, I can I, I I worship at the altar of PTI when it comes to like television chemistry. And so like I think about all of this stuff through the lens of how are they alike? How are they different? Can they dislike each other but not actually resent each other um, after the show's done in terms of like disagreement? You know, like all of that stuff. And so, but but it speaks to this trend that is, I think underappreciated now in this era of zoom and i get why um by the way the diy aspect of this and this is like the democratization of everything access to platform access to megaphone um there has been so much good and so much unintended bad i won't belabor it i think we all intuitively know that from our own lives but what that has led to is i think a degradation or at the very least a devaluing of the show as a product meaning there is a there is an open there is theme music there are graphics there's a staff right i mean that's that's let's, let's talk about this economically right like the thing about access to everything in terms of your microphone is your phone and so too is it everything it means that you don't need humans to be on a staff with you and so when you build a media company which is what we're trying to do. I work for Metal Arc Media, a startup trying to do this very thing. Like, yeah, I don't want to apologize for hiring people because I think I have jobs for them to do. Presuming that the show as a show is appreciated on that level. And I think it can be. And I think that the economics, of course, are leading us in the opposite direction because why would you need that when we can automate everything, when we can AI up graphics and music, everything I said, maybe a computer can do. Um, but I believe that we are missing a bunch of what it means um, to build a show and why it was so entrancing once upon a time. Um, even as I consume a lot of stuff, by the way, that is essentially two people talking or only audio. I love that stuff in its own way. But the thing that's been the biggest loser when it comes to products in this field is the show as a show. Yeah. And hopefully everyone doesn't turn off this podcast with two people talking <laughs> without without a team and and in seriousness like of course. I, like i um i think there's room for both and what i don't get without with a team uh i have one person who helps me in a variety of ways joey you're the man you're the best you're awesome um and i've shout had other joey shout yes. out to joey and i've had other people along the way who have certainly helped with this podcast in a variety of ways and uh, there's limits. And I think like that's to me, I'm good with the limits of this and what it is and what it's not. Uh, I decided not to do advertising. It's like, hey, this is something to to quench my curiosity. And hopefully others, like you said earlier, are along the way. But what we don't get is the value of collaboration. And mm, mm. like there are two things that have come out of me doing this podcast there's a lot, but there's two main themes that I've learned generally talking to people beyond that they're often intentional with how they go about their life, which is why we changed the name to Intentional Performers. It's interesting because you changed your names along the way as well, which maybe we'll get into. But this idea of collaboration and this idea of curiosity, I think they are underpinning American values that don't often get the shine that independence and, you know, um, ambition or drive or confidence get with American values. And if you look at anything that's really been worthwhile in our country, in our society, 
they usually stem from insane curiosity and get built with insane curiosity. But then there's this other piece, which is collaboration. And we make, we make it this myth of like Elon Musk or Thomas Edison or Steve jobs or pick your wizard. And we say it was just them that built their business. And there's almost always a team of people that were helping get that thing to where they want to go. And I'll bring this back to sports real quick. It's the same in sports. We talk about MJ and to Scotty Pippen's credit, we don't often talk about Paxson and Kerr and Cartwright and Grant and all these other people that were essential to the success. And in sports, we've seen these dream teams that are filled with superstars, but they don't work together and they don't collaborate and they don't get to where they want to go. So when I hear you talk about the power of building a media company that's going to be collaborative and maybe someone's going to see something that you didn't see and even having two co-hosts when you interview Larza and Marcus, they're going to see and notice something that you otherwise wouldn't have seen. And they're probably going to collaborate before you even turn on the microphones to help shape the, um, the beauty of the conversation. You're right. I, I don't have that. And if I was building this out as a full fledged business, I would need it. It would be essential because otherwise I'm limiting the potential. You it's so brilliantly put collaboration as an American principle. And I should also say, as as someone who consumes two people talking all of the time, like I am talking about what would I build if I could have the resources and get the audience that I desired, right? Like I would want to build it out because it invites more collaborators, truly. Like, I, man, I go into an office now. I hosted ESPN Daily, which was ESPN's daily news show, loved it, took great pride in it. Very different show, similar in some ways, but very different, I would say. Um, and I did 700 episodes from here, from my house. Um, and I collaborated over Slack on some phone calls, but it was solitary physically in a way that only revealed itself to be solitary when I went into a physical office with collaborators. I did not know how solitary it was until I was reminded of what it means to be on a team. And as a human, you know, and this is this is uh, transcending America now, but just as a human being, I just think we we have come. And this is, again, everyone likes on this during the pandemic, I suppose, or post um, we 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 have forgotten how good it feels to be around people who make you better in person. And that's the lesson of sports. Right. You can't have a remote locker room. You know, like you don't send people home after the game and say, we'll get on a Zoom call. Why? They tried it. They tried it. I mean, in the pandemic, I worked with college teams and they were like, this is impossible. Like we are not forming the connections that we Connection. need. That's we're it. not, we're not forming them. And it's brutal. And you ask sports coaches, especially college, like that's a place where you could really talk to people on collaboration connection. And, and they will tell you like those two years there, like, they were unable to build the connections that they really wanted. And, and it brings me back to the two of us meeting. You took the train down from New York to Washington, D.C. for a night to come to this stranger's house that you just trust David, who, if you know David, he's a pretty trustworthy source. Uh, and, and you show up at our house and there is connection there and there's collaboration and people sharing and helping each other that don't necessarily know each other. And so for me, that's been a big driver, especially coming out of the pandemic, is how can I be a vehicle to bring people together in person while also using this technology when it's when it's 
more valuable. And, and every business is figuring that out right now. Like how yes. do we use the technology to make our, ourselves better and progress, but maybe we need to do an offsite or retreat. And cause we can't lose the connection that creates the collaboration that changes the world. Uh, before we close, there is one thing that we talked about uh, when you came to my house that I do want to share with other people, because I think it's a unique uh, common interest and curiosity that we both have, which is around the world of personality assessments. And it's interesting, like I probably set out to explore this 14 years ago and um, basically like closed the book. I was like, I'm done with this stuff. I use what I use. I'm content with it. I created my own I'm content with that. I didn't want to go through the process of validating it and going through the scientific experience and experimenting that was needed to actually make this a tool. You have done a deep dive and continue to do a deep dive specifically into to one assessment that the NFL uses. And our conversation was enlightening and actually sparked a curiosity in me again to learn more mm. about what's going on in that world. So share how you got into this space and an interest in it and what you've discovered along the way. Yeah, I find that psycho. I mean, so much of my show at bottom is about human nature. And I know that's so much of your interest too. And psychology, how the brain works, how we can measure it, how we can know ourselves better and know others better in a way that can be quantified and compared in an effort to make a better team, um, get a better results, build a better company. All of that is so deeply fascinating because of how unknowable we are, despite how much we talk about ourselves. <laughs> and so when it comes to these instruments, these tests, like I'm fascinated by the people who do it rigorously, who have science, but also some notion of for lack of a better word, reality of how humanity works, how human nature functions. And so it's interesting. I, I came to you because I David had mentioned that this was a passion of yours. And I began to realize how much of one it was. And began, I began to realize how jumbled a lot of the language was around what any of these things are. Are these personality tests? Are they intelligence tests? Are they IQ tests? What are we really trying to measure? Um, and so in sports... The NFL was was the reason I got into this. There was this controversy in the NFL this season around the NFL draft, around the first two picks that went number one and number two. Um, Bryce Young from Alabama went number one. C.J. Stroud from uh, C.J. Stroud from Ohio State went number two, and Bryce Young um, and C.J. Stroud had both taken what has come to replace the wonderlick, which was the IQ test the intelligence test, so to speak, that every prospect would take and be graded on. Maybe if you're a sports fan, you remember these scores getting leaked um, and they would be embarrassing and they would sort of speak to a, a, a far deeper conversation that we get into on the episode. But it got replaced because it turned out to be uh, functionally useless by a new test called the S2. And the S2 has been billed as an intelligence test. Um, and... C.J. Stroud and Bryce Young uh, both took it and Bryce Young aced it like 98 percent, I believe. Um, C.J. Stroud got sub 20 and this informed him going number two reportedly and Bryce Young going number one. Spoiler alert now, fast forward, C.J. Stroud has had the greatest rookie season in the history of NFL quarterbacks. Bryce Young has been struggling and his coaching staff mostly got fired. And so there has been a controversy around. So what does this say about the test? And there were lots of takes around the test. And what I needed to do was actually figure out like what is in this test and what do the makers of the test actually say it is. And so I took the S2 test 
And I talked to those guys who engineered it and they very clearly say, this is actually not an intelligence test. It's a test that measures cognition. It measures speed of processing, decision-making. And so anyway, bundled into this whole thing is a reasonable debate over whether anything you take in test form can prepare you for the reality of the job you are being measured to do. And in football, it seems like a very clear gap. <laughs> so I take the S2 test and I'm watching like small objects bounce around. It's entirely like uh, a read and react sort of a thing. There's no vocabulary like the Wonderlick had, no reading comp, no math. It's just not can you based track on these the big, not based on big five personality, which is no. what most personality assessments are based on. And there's been even documentaries to debunk it. And it's been highly controversial in the psychology world. So, all right, keep going. No, but like, are you ENTG? No, none of that <laughs> stuff. None of that stuff is in this. It's just like, can you process this screen with a certain speed? And so I found it to be both valuable and extraordinarily limited. Valuable in the sense of this gets us closer to what I feel like the measuring of a quarterback's job might be. Can you follow this object under duress, under pressure? Um, and it's a speed question, speed of processing question. That seems reasonable, better than the Wonderlick, which was like, I took the Wonderlick test, by the way, as well. Um, and the Wonderlick test had literally like SAT questions on it. And I was like, I, 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 I. I, I don't think there's any empirical proof over time, and it's been decades, that that has predicted performance. And in fact, it hasn't. But the S2 was promising because it was pledging to measure a, a, a capacity to, to uh, sort through information under time pressure. Um, but at the same time, and this speaks to the team thing, like the supremacy of, and I wonder if this is where you landed too, right, Brad? The supremacy of any test as dispositive about how good you are at a job that is multivariate and complicated and affected by not just your skill, but by your teammates. I mean, the job of quarterback, think about how insane that is, right? A quarterback, um, when Steph Curry shoots a three, the hoop doesn't need to catch the ball. I talked to Alex Smith, uh, former quarterback, number one overall pick, ace the wonderlick, all of that stuff. He's skeptical about all of this because he knows how a play breaks down is so often outside of the quarterback's control. So a lot of it, a lot of my skepticism in the end, cynicism in the end, is not even about, oh, this test sucks or not. It's about how confident we can ever be <laughs> about projecting something that we cannot control and how much of a fool's errand that might be. It's so interesting as we're recording this, I've got a couple of thoughts and we'll bring it to sports, maybe to lighten it. We went pretty heavy in intelligence and self-reflection and all the things it is my show. So those are all the things that I would say <laughs> I'm interested in. Uh, and we probably went a little lighter on humor, which people that know me and be like, yeah, that, that probably sounds right. Although I always say like, you can find me at the inner, if I'm at a wedding, I, I'm either on the dance floor, like making a fool of myself or I'm in the corner and someone's telling me about their history of using drugs. Like it's, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I get, I get both. It's <laughs> a good uh, guest. That's a good wedding guest. Yeah, there's the polarity. I'm a very good wedding guest. Uh, very, very good. I always joke that I could be a wedding planner without actually having to do the planning stuff. But if you want to know the music you should play, the food you should give, uh, the activities we should be doing on the dance floor, like I'm, yep. I'm, I believe very, that all, by the way, very additive to all of those things. Um, but I want to go back to what Alex Smith was saying because I have interviewed players at the Combine, at the NBA, at Major League Soccer. I've interviewed players for the NHL. Um, I've seen these assessments that they're giving. 
And to me, the way to think about all of it is a they're all buckets. And just like a wingspan is a bucket for an NBA player or their their vertical or their shooting percentage or the analytics or the background or the due diligence. I mentioned I was talking to a basketball coach yesterday. We were talking about a player who we both watched in high school who I'm tempted to say his name. I'll say his mm. name. Uh, it was Naz Reed. Uh, oh, yeah. Who... I watched him in high school. He did not give a shit about the game he was playing in. He could have dominated and he literally didn't care. And I was like, I'm out on this guy. And if you follow the NBA right now, you'd have to probably be a pretty big follower to follow him. Like he is an impact player on one of the best teams in the league, Minnesota Timberwolves. And he's really good. Like he's, mm -hmm. he's really good basketball player. And so we tend to write off kids when they're 17, 18 years old in sports. And that also is, uh, a, Fool's gold. And yes. there's all the kinds age of, you took the test is instructive here too. Like there's all these different elements. So anyway, I think we're both getting to the point, which it's really hard to predict future talent. And it's funny because I, I'm not a big college football guy, but I watched Washington uh, the other night and I watched the Michigan game and I'm watching those. I'm like, dude, this guy, Michael Penix, I like, dude, I don't know what anyone else is seeing, but he throws the ball like the guys I watch on Sunday. And that's simple. Like that's just simple. Whereas some of these other guys I'm watching, I don't see them throwing the ball like the guys I watch on Sunday. And then I'm sure someone, you know, Dan Orlovsky comes out with this video and this breakdown. And I think he's really smart side note. I bumped into him at Disney world when I was in Disney world, introduced myself. He was a great guy, super kind and friendly. Uh, but he's also really tall, which I didn't He's incredibly tall. He tall. <laughs> but like just, it's, it's silly to me. But him then I'm watching him and he's like, yeah, this is the best throwing guy I've seen all year. And then he's like, so I've got him like, you know, he's my fourth quarterback. And I'm like, wait a second, man. You just said he's the best throwing guy you've seen all season, but he's not your top guy because <laughs> there's so much, there's so it, it. And I used to have an NBA draft website. Trust me. I got this stuff wrong all the time. And I watched, you don't even want to know how much film he Pablo talked about obsessing. I would sit on, there was a web, there was a, I got access to this thing that the NBA teams use it's called synergy. And I would just oh, watch yeah. film clip after clip after clip of people sorting by like pick and rolls. You can do by every play type. Oh, and Paul George, I watched him. I was like, I can't watch this guy anymore. He turns the ball over. He's lazy. He does all this stuff. I'm like, Oh, that guy's a hall of famer. Uh, like you were <laughs> wrong, Brian. Like you're just flat out wrong. Dude, the flat draft, wrong. the draft. So the, the, I am so deeply suspicious of anybody who is overconfident about their prophetic scouting abilities, man. I know there are some people who are better than others. There's no question. And by the way, when I talked to the S2 guys, they had a great point. They said, look, if someone has a Amon Ross St. Brown receiver for the Lions had a slow 40 time for a receiver and he's awesome. Do you want to throw out the 40 time? It's a great point. No, I, I I want to know at this point what his 40 time is, what his S2 test is. I took the test and I'm like, I'd actually still want to know what this is. The question, though, is what power we give it over the prediction that we're making and our confidence. And man, humility is the only outcome that I know when it comes to anyone who thinks that they're good at uh, being a scout. Or anything in general. Or and, anything in general. <laughs> yeah. And and I want to end with like a little lightness. So I can't have you on this podcast. We're recording on Friday, January 5th. And this will go live in, in like five or six days. So I'm watching the NBA last night on TNT. 
I can't remember a regular season Thursday night, which is when they have their marquee games typically, that involved like there was Giannis Antetokounmpo versus Victor Wembayama. And there mm-hmm. are these two seven foot guys going at it at a skill level that I don't think we have ever seen in the history of basketball. And I'm watching that and I'm just mind blown. And I'm like, is everybody watching this? I hope everyone's watching this. And I'm texting my friends, I'm tweeting, I'm doing everything I can to let people know that they should watch this. It was insanity. And then uh, I stay up a little bit for the late night game. And I'm watching a guy in Nikola Jokic and a guy in Stephen Curry who both play under the rim and both were told that they were not athletic enough to play in this league. And sure, Jokic is 6'11". And by the way, Stephen Curry is like 6'2", 6'3". People tend to think he's like some midget and he's not. Correct. Uh, he's not. Uh, no, people infantilize him and I'm like, you should meet him. He's an athletic He's specimen. like visibly <laughs> strong and tall. <laughs> and watch him hit a golf ball. And like the guy's an athletic freak. Yeah. But like uh, we're both NBA, I think, fans. Yeah. And and yet when I meet people, I so often hear from them, I can't watch. They shoot mm. too much. They are selfish. I hear people say this all the time. People I respect and love dearly. And I don't know anyone who could have watched last night and not been in awe of either of those games. If you want the freakish athleticism with seven footers, the things those two guys are doing, Giannis and Wembayama, like were insane. And then you watch the skill and the ability of Jokic and Curry to dominate underneath the rim. And I'm like, the NBA now has room for all four of these superstars. And by the way, there's another 10 of them that are also, I could watch, I text my friend, I go, I could watch pretty much every team in the NBA, maybe not my local wizards, but like pretty much like every other team has somebody that I'm in awe of. And yet people want to say that they're not interested. And and even the, the, the data, like the, the TV ratings yep. sort of back that up. What do you think that's about? And just give me your overall perspective on what you witnessed as you were watching this stuff last night. I mean, Jokic, uh, I mean, that's the dude who hit the three at midcourt to win the game against Steph Curry. Like, that scene, and I say this a, a lot, I find myself um, uh, realizing, if you were to send that clip back in time, like, they would, I mean, it, it would be, you'd be burned for witchcraft on every level. Patrick Ewing, right? Patrick Ewing brings the ball up and shoots like a fadeaway three from half court and makes it. It just... It didn't happen. So, so no offense to Patrick. No question. No question. I mean, I, I, so a couple of things are going on that are all really interesting to me. One of them, I believe, and, and I realize now I'm the person who also sort of like long for the era of like a TV show as a TV show. So mileage may vary on, on, on nostalgia, but so often nostalgia is a lie. So the idea that people are mining for what the days of the nineties when games were like, you know, when when it was mid-range jumpers being bricked and it was like a 90 to 89 game, like what about that was so entertaining, really? Or was it that this was when you came to love something and now for various reasons, you've convinced yourself that the new thing cannot possibly be good as the old thing? A lot of sports I find psychologically is, in fact, about my dad being able to beat up your dad. 
LeBron can never be the greatest player of all time because Michael Jordan is. My dad can beat up your dad. It's like, okay, great. So a bit of a dead end in terms of just the psychology of nostalgia when it comes to that stuff. But the rating stuff is a, the other thing that's happening is that um, I think young people are just consuming sports to speak to the fragmentation of everything so differently. What about the NFL? Because I hear that and then I'm like, the NFL is just crushing so, everybody. So the NFL is crushing everybody. I think the NFL has a couple of things going for it. But to speak to the product as as a business product, they own a day of the week. Now a and now <laughs> and now are expanding outward from there, but they have retained this notion of every game is an event versus every game is a short form clip you can catch up later or just watch it on Twitter. Like a lot of kids are just following NBA. They love, and, and this is tying into another thing about inheritances from your dad, but like a lot of young people, it turns out data wise are fans of individuals and not the laundry, right? Not the teams that, that, that we grew up um, having allegiance for because we live in a world of fragmentation and on-demand everything. You can watch anybody, anywhere, anytime from any era. And so they're picking and choosing this buffet-style approach to sports, which is, of course, what they would do when they're given options. But it takes out the um, it takes out the ability to schedule an event that you must come to to get your fix. The NFL, because I think they more deliberately have a control over a calendar, and because they supplement supplement it with violence, <laughs> and because it's weird, so. NFL versus NBA, the NFL versus the NBA in this way, right? Um, I think about it also as like a as theater. In the NBA, you see everyone's faces. And so you think, I and I'm compelled by that. There's no better seat in entertainment in any the form floor. than the floor of an NBA game. You're and trust on, me, I've I've tried it. I've sat on the glass, I've sat behind the dugout. I've I've tried it, man. Same. There is nothing like feet on the wood, man. It is nothing. Nothing you're like on, it. Brian, you're on stage. Nothing like you're that. at the same, you're on the same floor, literally. That's what it means. And you can see everything, hear everything, see the sweat, smell Patrick Ewing's sweat. You do all of it. And you're like this, I, there's an intimacy. There is a human, again, connectivity there. And the NFL is so fascinating because the NFL in this era of individualism in which young people are drawn to characters and personality and soap opera, right? That feels like stuff that feeds so well into the short form digital world. But the NFL is analog and throwback in a way of you can't even see these guys' faces. And so there is this, this, this enshrining of laundry and of violence that feels old school, right? It feels anti-technological in some way. Gladiator. It's gladiators. Gladiators with chains. Chains measure. And, and so they're not stressed out about, and you mentioned the NBA having all this technological stuff, which I love as, as, as a bit of a nerd on, on all that stuff. A lot of a nerd on all that stuff. The NFL's not worried about that. The NFL is selling you gladiators. And, and so- ga And gambling, right? Like the And gambling. Yeah. And, 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 um, and a tribalism. Mm -hmm. Because you're here to watch these logos crash into each other, as opposed to the human theater of, in my opinion, the NBA, which is its most distinguishing quality. Like, dude, I'll watch pickup basketball walking on the street. Me too. Because I can, and man, we're similar in this way, right? Because immediately we're looking at the psychologies of the guys on the court. 
the spacing, but that's also what I love about football is the spacing, the strategy. Like for me, if it didn't have the violence, I love the strategy, the spacing. Do you run? Do you pass? What do you do? How do you do it? To me, it's chess. That's the yes. beauty. That's the Tactics. beauty. That's the beauty of the NFL. But the tribalism thing, and then we'll we'll wind it, we'll wind down here. Uh, the tribalism, you hit on something there because if I think about my friends, uh, like in Washington, DC, I've got friends from all over. They don't abandon their NFL team. They might abandon their NBA team, their NHL team, their major league baseball team, or they'll even create room for a second team in the NFL. Like they, people, when they move to another city, they do not abandon their NFL team. There's something tribal about that. And it's not even about necessarily just because my dad did it or my grandpa did it, it, there is a tribal component that I think you hit on that I hadn't thought of before. Yeah, because when you go to watch these events, they feel, man, there's there's a collectivism in how the NFL markets itself. The teams matter, right? And this speaks to also like the thing I love about the NBA now too, which objectively, just as a side note, like of course this is the most talented group of human beings that ever played basketball. Of course, of course. But the individualism, speaking also to the logical evolutions of of the capitalism of basketball, right? Player empowerment, free agency, the ability to change teams. The NFL sells you teams. The NBA still is marketing individuals. And so, of course, you're not going to abandon the team when the team is the sport, when the team is the game. And so that's a trade-off that the NBA in this digital era is very happy about on the internet and less happy about when it comes to like actually getting in front of a TV with your friends. I think we've come full circle because it speaks to the power of collaboration, the team. And that's probably why college football is also maintaining Huge. its success because it's about the team. It's not about the individual and basketball has got to figure that out because I think college basketball for years has just followed the NBA's lead. And so they made it about the individual. And I've always said like, dude, college basketball should not be about individuals anymore. First of all, the best individuals probably shouldn't even be there. And then mm -hmm. second of all, like be college basketball, be the team that has four seniors that pass is the ball and plays together, which it's not anymore. And then if you watch the best NBA teams, oh, by the way, for those that don't watch anymore, here's a little nice uh, snippet for you. They actually pass a ton and they totally play together. No, that's, uh, that's highly it's, collaborative. Yes, there's a there's a branding and marketing problem. And underneath the NBA is being underrated because it's gotten swallowed up by the caricature, even if the caricature is rooted in these fundamental trends that are diverging the NBA and the NFL. So Pablo, we could probably do sports all day, but I think what's been beautiful about this conversation is hopefully people got their sports fix. Hopefully they also got some thoughtful conversations around culture, around the future of media, around uh, what it means to be curious, what it means to be collaborative. Uh, and for me, those intersections are all what I probably am most interested in. So this has been a blast. Uh, I want to tell people to check out your show, whether it's on YouTube or if they want to listen uh, in their ears, uh, they can do that as well. And then also follow you on social media. I know you do a, a great job there as well. So if people want to find the show, if they want to find you on social media, where are the best places for them to do that? Yes. The show is Pablo Torre finds out it's on YouTube to search for it there. Apple podcasts, all the podcast platforms. I have a newsletter. It's free. I will send to your email box every episode that we do with a little note. It's www.pablo.show. And then at Pablo Torre on social media, blah, 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 blah. Just hopefully um, Google me and 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 don't be um yeah, don't don't be exhausted by what I'm trying to do. So thank you. 
<laughs> I'm at Brian Levinson at blah, 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 blah. And you can listen to all of these conversations at strongskills.co slash podcast. Pablo, this is a blast. Looking forward to the next time we break bread and, and we can continue to talk about how the NBA can maybe tweak their marketing to, to continue to get their product, which is incredible into more and more homes yes. and, and hearts. Yeah. Uh, you are a consummate host as always, Brian. Thank you, man. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. When I was a magazine writer, and this is both born of my neuroses as well, but as a magazine writer, I was obsessive in ways that were probably extreme, honestly, but in choosing every word, every punctuation mark, and I don't know if anybody ever noticed it, but for me, it was always considering the next word, the next punctuation mark as a potential exit ramp for someone. So I always am thinking like, when are they gonna tune out when it comes to constructing my own stuff? Um, and I'm just mindful of that. 